Welcome to The Vow, Voice of Women. Our mission has always been about empowering women through the sharing of real-life stories. When women create a community through the journey of sharing, we gain empathy, forgiveness, and perspective. We encourage you to open your heart to receive today's story. Today's guest is Marsha Jacobson. And just before we started recording, I said, Marsha, your story is like a movie. And she says, so many people have told me this. So I'm really excited to have Marsha here today. Marsha, welcome. Thank you. It's wonderful to be with you. Marsha is joining us from New York City. She is a self-proclaimed city gal, is an author, teacher, and writing a coach based in New York City. But her journey is more than just city life. It's a story of resilience. Marsha's debut book, The Wrong Calamity, is a memoir that shares her triumphant escape from an abusive marriage in a dramatic police chase. Her experiences have appeared in publications like the New York Times, and she's a true inspiration for those seeking empowerment and transformation. Today, we will explore Marsha's remarkable journey and how she emerged as a beacon of strength for women everywhere. Marsha, welcome. Thank you. So let's just dive in. Can you share more about the specific emotional and psychological toll that being in in an abusive marriage took on you, especially in the early years when you probably felt cornered and made choices you later regretted? You know... I, part of the emotional toll of being in, a, in, in an abusive marriage um, is that you're constantly on guard. I should just speak for myself. I was constantly on guard, wondering what was going to happen next, looking for the next bad thing. You know, even just saying something um, that in most cases would just be a normal sentence to say, like, what do you want to do tomorrow? You know, I, I would be phrasing, working in my head to phrase a, a sentence so that it would be as neutral as possible or, you know, might not trigger a reaction that I wasn't anticipating. It's exhausting. It, it, just having that level of attention on what might happen um, is exhausting and, and demoralizing. Um, it's almost like being under constant scrutiny. Um, and I think, you know, another big thing about it is there's no break. Um, I mean, at least for me, this was, you know, in this marriage, this was the person I was eating meals with. This was the person, you know, that I was seeing movies with. I mean, there, there, for me, there was no break. And um, it reinforced my sense of being helpless uh, because I always felt I was facing a potential big problem and, and, and I wouldn't know what to do um, about it, you know, if suddenly there was a blow up, for example. And it reinforced my sense of being a victim. And of course, that then made it, um, made me almost feel like I deserved it. 
um, mm-hmm. this was the lot in life that uh, that I was due. Um, and I will say that I was young, I was inexperienced, and I was keeping what was going on a secret. I was isolating myself. Now, that was the case in both my marriages, and um, but I don't count my second marriage as an abusive marriage. That was a different situation that, you know, I imagine we'll get to. Um, but when I was really in an abusive situation, just the isolation made it worse. So let's talk about the fir- your first marriage. You mentioned you were young. So maybe walk through so our listeners can understand like how young you were, how long were you married to this person until you noticed abuse or was abuse from, you know, the week you met him till the week you left him? Mm-hmm. So I was... I was raised by parents who, uh, my parents raised me to believe I was a no account. And I believed that. Um, One of the things my mother used to say all the time was, you're not someone who can be choosy. And that became um, sort of my personal gospel that I I believed. Um, My parents divorced when I was young. Um, My mother actually ran away um, with us, um, from New Jersey, where we lived to go back to Indiana, where, where her people were. And, and this was when my father was at work and didn't know that we were running away. So it was, it was very traumatic, very disruptive. Um, and I spent a long time waiting for my father to come find me. And it turned out he knew where I was all the time and, and hadn't been interested. And my mother would have much preferred, just not to have me as a daughter. So that's the Mm -hmm. framework, um, you know, with which I went to college. And very quickly in college, I fell under the spell of um, an assistant dean who was very controlling, um, kind of a Svengali, And, you know, now I understand that he recognized a pushover when he saw one. You know, what I thought at the time is that he was amazing. He was paying attention to me, um, which was brand new. He was also teaching me things. You know, I had moved from Indiana to Boston to go to college. He was taking me to theater and opera and, and, and uh, concerts and, and just all kinds of places. And I, I very quickly kind of became a, you know, a moon circling around him and um, sort of in his gravitational pull. When ultimately he asked me to marry him, I was just graduated from college. I mean, just, just a few weeks earlier. And that was, so, so I was that young. And even at the moment that he um, proposed, although I had kind of been waiting for it, um, I knew that this was going to be very bad for me. And nonetheless, I said yes. I said yes because I saw no options. Um, not only that, 
against my will. I agreed to go to Japan with him. He wanted to move to Japan and um, he threatened that, that if I didn't go with him, he would just leave me behind. And I was imagining the shame of being a, an, an abandoned wife, you know, who mm-hmm. hadn't even been married a few months yet. Um, and so, you know, that, that was the position that I was in. But at the same time, he was he was magical. He knew things I didn't know. He taught me things that I wanted to know. And so there was there was this push and pull. And it um, it came to a head. We lived in Japan for five years. And I need to take a little, um, you know, a sidebar here to tell you that one of the things that happened when I was in Japan, I was a singer and I had joined a Japanese chorus and the conductor was giving me private lessons and I was I was giving a concert and I had to find a really good um, accompanist. And I did find an accompanist who graduated from the conservatory at McGill and through her, I met her husband, Saul Mester, who was the CEO of Mattel Toys in Southeast Asia. And because of that chance meeting and, and a conversation that he and I had, nine months later, he called and wanted and gave me a job at Mattel. It mm. was it was incredibly unexpected. I argued with him. That I didn't have the qualifications that he wanted. I was so naive, but I did take that job and it, it was very successful. And I began to see that I really had talents that I didn't know, that I didn't recognize. Now, as I became more successful, my husband became more abusive and mm-hmm. it got to the point that once we were in America back home, I was, um, I was pregnant. I had a three-year-old who had been born in uh, Japan and I knew I had to get away from him. It took the insight of a friend and a conversation that was very meaningful to me for me to realize that I needed um, to leave. And I told him I wanted a divorce and everything was going fine. He agreed. We, you know, we made lists of who would take what. This was going to be simple, straightforward. We weren't going to put the kids in the middle. And he was not there the morning that I was packing and leaving to going to my own, to go to my own new apartment. And all of a sudden police show up with a restraining order and tell me that I cannot leave because either my husband or his lawyer had wakened a judge in the middle of the night, told them, which was untrue, that my husband was out of town on business and that he had just learned that I was running away with everything we owned and with our children. Um, And... You know, it it was at that moment that I realized I was in a dirty war, that no normal rules applied. My my little girls were there. They were two and four at the time. My dad was helping me pack. I was not taking very much. Um, 
I asked the police if the cops could take, if my father could take the kids out to his truck because uh, they really shouldn't, you know, see this. They said yes. They handed me um, a restraining order and a summons to appear in court a few days later. They left. I went out to the truck to get the girls back inside, tell my dad to come back inside. The cops, I discovered, were still in their cruiser filling out paperwork in my driveway. And without even thinking about it, when I opened the door to get the girls out, I jumped into it and screamed to my father that he should drive. And and that's what happened. I, I mean, the police were chasing us. Their sirens were blaring. Cars were moving out of the way so that the police were catching up with us. I had noticed that they had guns, and I was terrified. And then all of a sudden, the police stopped. And entirely by accident, because um, I was a, not trained in being a fugitive, I had, it turned out that my apartment uh, where I was giving him directions to, to drive to was just over the county line and those police did not have authority in my new county. Hmm. Um, when I went, I spent the next five days terrified that the Norfolk County cops would get the Suffolk County cops to come get me, but they didn't. And in court, the case was dismissed. I was not going to jail because it was revealed in something that my now ex-husband's um, lawyer said that the initial claim to the judge that he knew nothing about it had been a lie. Hmm. And, um, and that's, that's how um, all of all of that happened. And in terms of, you know, was there a straw that broke the camel's back? Yeah, I could not spend one more night in, in, uh, you know, with with someone who had set the cops on me. Hmm. I didn't articulate that to myself until much later. I was just operating on instinct. I had to get the girls and myself out of there because who knew what could happen next? Wow. Wow. I, that's a, that's a crazy story. <laughs> it's, do you sometimes look back at that and be like, is that even my story? Did that actually happen? <laughs> oh, I know that it actually happened. <laughs> I, I don't look back and ask myself, that I do look back with with a great deal of appreciation and and I make this explicit in in the book um, you know I was operating on 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 some kind of instinct I, I didn't stop to think or reason when I did that but and, you know, I had no resilience at the time. I, I had no self-confidence. But what I came, I thought, but what I came to realize is that our resilience, our self-confidence is actually 
the capacity for, for resilience and self-confidence are in us when we are born. And we just need people to nurture our understanding that we have those strengths. I unfortunately didn't have parents who nurtured that, but along the way, I did have people who noticed my strengths, noticed my talents, and and you know some of that was absorbed by me, uh, you know, reflected from them on to me. Um, and at that point, I, I had enough to just get the kids out of there and myself out of there. It was pretty primitive. I don't know if I would do the same thing today, um, but I think that was, you know, just one of those moments that you can really put a pin on and say it took a lot of steps to get to being self-confident, resilient, being someone who could handle things. And that was definitely one of the signposts that mm -hmm. I was on my way. I had two questions that came to mind as you were telling your story and you mentioned your daughters. So my first question, Marcia, is what type of abuse did you face? Was it emotional, physical, both? And what what was the the point that it just got so bad that you you were like, you know, it might be our lives or we, we have to go? The abuse was mostly emotional, some physical, but, but mostly emotional. The thing is, once there is, you know, one slap or whatever it happens to be, the notion that there can be more um, now adds to the picture. Do you think that if you had not had your daughters, if you had, you know, just been married to this man and had no children, that you would have been able to leave? Or do you think that having two little girls um, was really a big catalyst in your leaving? Oh, what an interesting question. There were times when I was motivated to do things that I did good things and, and things that, you know, probably today I would do differently because, because I had these girls and, and they depended on me and I loved them more than anything in the world. And um, I was just going to protect them. It's also true that I had two little girls and that and a vindictive ex-husband once we were divorced. And that made a lot of things harder. But I certainly never, ever wished I didn't have the girls. I know that's not the question you, you know, I know, I know you weren't even suggesting yeah, no, definitely not suggesting. I, I, my, my curiosity with asking that question is, you know, and I have two little girls, they're six and nine, and I'm thankfully in a very loving marriage uh, with no abuse. But I, I just wonder if, you know, having kids to your point, you would, you would die for your children. You would do anything. 
Yes. If if I didn't have children and I was in an abusive mess marriage, and this is all theoretical, like I just I wonder if, you know, if you the the desire to leave would be less because you'd be alone, where there versus the desire to keep your children safe is just there's nothing that really compares to that. Um, I, uh, I'm sorry. No, you go ahead. No, that's I, that's all. I can't I can't know for sure. Of course. Um, but what I what I believe is that I would have left earlier. Um, I'll give you a specific example. I told you when I came back from Japan, I was pregnant with my younger daughter. I waited until after she was born and until she was two because I I didn't exactly know what I was going to do after I left him, but I certainly didn't feel that I could cope, you know, with an infant and a two-year-old. And, you know, at the time I didn't have a, a job. I ultimately found a job, um, you know, a, a part-time typist job. I was, I was on food stamps, you know, when I ran away from him, that's where I ended up on food mm -hmm. stamps and a part-time typist job, you know, um, and, and after that, I mean, a lot of things were harder. Like when I went to graduate school, of course, it's challenging to go to school um, and also be taking care of two little girls. And of course, once I had the little girls, I also had a vindictive ex-husband and he probably would have lost interest in me sooner if the, if the girls hadn't been there, you know, for for him to, you know, argue over or, or whatnot, or, um, or try to use to get at me. Um, because he stalked me for a number of years. Uh, at one point, uh, they were with him. Um, and uh, he, when he brought them home, he, he took off their winter coats and ran away with them on, you know, left them on my front porch and in, in, in in very cold weather without their coats. Uh, when I was at work at that typist job, he would try to break into my apartment while I was there. And, um, you know, he terrified my sitters and gradually they left. I mean, everything was harder because I had kids to care for and because along with the kids came, you know, a, a more troublesome ex-husband than probably would have been on the scene if I hadn't had children. Mm -hmm. Well, and, you know, we always hear about the legal system and the legal system's limitations in protecting you and your daughters are, you know, where that, that can be common when, when women go through this um, and are survivors of abuse. Can you, uh, I mean, I guess, can you elaborate on some of the challenges that you might have faced with the legal system and how you navigated through them? Yeah, and I think I have to say right up front, I don't feel even now um, with the benefit of a lot of hindsight that I navigated through them. I would say I just endured. Yeah, um, you survived. I just, I just had to go through it. And at no point did I feel like I could affect 
you know, anything that happened in that courtroom. Um, it's, you know, things are better now in, you know, in, in divorces in, in a lot of states, but still a lot of the problems that I endured way back then, and we're talking about in the late seventies and early eighties is, um, you know, are things that, that are still a problem today. I mean, going to court is really expensive. It's absolutely expensive. The, there is this enforced silence. I mean, it's my life. It's what going, what's going to happen to me and, and to my children. Um, but I can't say a word to the judge, you know, only the lawyers can speak. And, um, I had a judge, I, I, I described this in detail in the book. I had an astonishingly uh, misogynistic judge and a friend of mine who is a judge today tells me, oh yeah, well, you wouldn't find that, you know, these days. And honestly, I beg to differ because I know people who have gone through divorces very, very recently. And maybe there aren't people as outwardly uh, misogynistic as my judge was, but certainly women do not have full standing and a lot of the ways that decisions are made, it's, it's very sort of both sidesy and the sides are frequently not equal. Mm -hmm. um, now, in my case, I had a second divorce. That breakup was very different. That was a very good marriage. The loss of it was devastating to me. And in that situation, our divorce, we, we did what's called collaborative law. Collaborative law is now available in every single state. And so our divorce was just what the label says. It was collaborative. We worked things out between us. The lawyers are trained differently for, for collaborative law. Um, and it's a whole different process. But so if anyone's able to do that, I, I heartily, I'll, I, can, I can tell you that how it so much worked for me, um, but it will not work if both parties are not acting in good faith. And actually a young woman that I'm, that I'm quite close to um, was getting divorced in a, in, under collaborative law and her now ex-husband just, really had no intent of being collaborative um, and they had to go into, you know, regular litigation. So um, the actual, the court situation, plus how long it takes um, and how much of your life is in limbo while it's going on. Um, even today, I know people, I, I know women who, who are single parents of kids um, you know, who have kids have a relationship with the ex-husband, those women are not allowed to move to get a better job for themselves unless the ex-husband approves that they can take the kids, 
not only out of state, but more than a certain distance away from where the, the ex-husband lives. It's uh, other countries do it better, I'm told, but I don't know if Canada does it any better. I was going to say, even from a timing perspective, like, you know, you file for separation and then you have to be separated for so long and then you go through divorce. And even like I have a real estate company in Calgary and even, you know, purchasing homes like you can't purchase a home until you have a separation agreement signed. But I deal with a lot of women who the men know that they want to move on and buy a house. So they hang the separation agreement and the details over their head until they sign it because they know they want to buy a house. So that could be, well, I'm not going to sign the separation agreement until you agree to this custody, until you agree to this amount of money that I'm going to give you. So these women, if they want to move on with their lives, oftentimes they have to settle in a separation agreement. Exactly. Yeah, it's very you know, it sounds like it's a very challenging system to, to navigate. Um, it, yeah. yeah and, it, and, and it hasn't changed enough. It hasn't. Yeah. Yeah. We're, it's we're we're still very a lot more women enter the, the judiciary and, and the law. So, uh, but I'll tell you, honestly, I have the same hopes for, um, for the law system to get better as I did back in the seventies. That's fair. Well, let's um let's shift this a little. Your your journey, I mean, it's been it's it's been a journey. It's included a dramatic escape. Um uh, our listeners should should know like you attended Harvard Business School. I mean, that's kind of a big deal. And you've built a career while raising your daughters. So how did you manage all this trauma that you've been through and the demands of your life during this period and, and accomplishing all of this? <laughs> Manage is an interesting word. <laughs> you know, what I had to do at some point is just have faith that I had in me a working alarm system, you know, like a fire alarm system that would go off if something in a particular room, you know, if there was smoke in a particular room or something. Um, I, I had to have some faith in myself that if I needed to be focused on work at a certain period of time and less focused on the home front that if one of the girls or both of the girls, you, you know, suddenly needed more of my attention, I would know that and I would be able to shift. Um, the same thing at work. I mean, there were times when I was not giving work the time that I would have liked to, but I had these kids and I was never confused about my priority. So if I wrote a report um, and it was just good enough, well, good enough is good enough. And what has to happen with my girls has to be better than good enough. Now, I'll say two things. One is where I definitely fell short and paid an enormous price is... I, I just couldn't figure out how to have any social life for myself, anything that we now talk about as self-care, 
Mm-hmm. There was just no room for that. And, um, and, and that's, that's really, really important. Um, the other thing I'll say is that I missed a lot and, um, I'm, I'm kind of melancholy about that. Um, and it comes up in this, in this form, um, you know, one or both of my daughters will say, oh, remember that time when we, or remember how we used to, and I'm listening to that and I'm feeling, no, I don't remember that time. Mm -hmm. I don't remember when they used to. And, you know, and they'll, they'll, they'll relate the story and they'll be laughing about it. And I'll be laughing too, because I can, you know, fully imagine it and appreciate it. But someone I know said to me recently, look, when you're juggling kids and a job and a household, you know, not to mention if there's a, an ex-husband in the picture or something like that, you're basically just trying to make it through to, to bedtime with nobody bleeding. You know? <laughs> yes, I've heard that too. You know, you're just sort of focused on the next 15 minutes. And she said, I, I think we're all hearing about the, you know, the great things that happen with our kids, you know, now that the kids are adults, you know. And so that was a little reassuring. Um, but that, but that was a part of it. But I actually need to add one one other very important thing, and it, it's a it's too long a story to to talk about here. Um, it's it's a it's a significant you know part of of my story in the book, which is that while I was in Harvard Business School, my I had um, an accident and a bad back injury. And I missed um, being in the hospital and having surgery. I missed half of my final year. Wow. Um, I was in the hospital and I, I missed half of the final year in classes. And um, I was getting a lot of advice from people to just, you know, take a leave of absence, heal fully, and then come back and do the whole year over again. And I was dying to do that, but I could not. I had nowhere to live. My body was not in a shape. I had a year of physical therapy ahead of me. My body was not in a shape where I could get a job. I was very worried that my ex-husband would use this as grounds to say that I couldn't care for the girls. And, um, and I, anyway, like I said, it's a complicated story, but I did end up staying and getting my degree in time, you know, wow. when, when I would have, and that came because of the phenomenal support, generosity of the faculty, oh my God, the, my section mates in, in my first year section, I mean, at one point I was in a wheelchair and they set up a, a rotation of, of who would meet 
the special bus that was taking me and my in my wheelchair to campus and who would push me around campus and to my classes they were bringing assignments to me they i mean it was it was unbelievable the the support that i got and what is enormously important about that is that people say you know, I, I just want to say this. I am not a, a superhero. I, I am really not a superhero. Um, I have my talents. We all have our talents. But this is not like, you know, suddenly I am superwoman and I am just knocking down barriers. There are so many barriers that I was carried over, you know, by people who just appeared. And one of the things that happened when I was writing this book, I mean, literally, there were times I was writing and tears were rolling down my cheeks as I was writing. Sometimes it was because I was feeling some old sadness, but usually it's because just in putting my story down on paper, I was realizing just how generous, how many people, who they were, these unexpected helpers, you know, who were just there to help me. And I had not appreciated it at the time. And a great gift of writing this book is I have reached out to all of those people and reconnected. Now, some of them sadly have died. And one of them I was not able to track down. But Mm -hmm. all the others... And to be able to say, you made all the difference, you know, to actually be able to tell them what, what they meant to me has, has just, it's been phenomenal. And it's also rekindled old relationships in, in beautiful ways. Mm-hmm. Well, probably very cathartic to go through writing your book. Anyone I've talked to that's written a book, you know, says that. And, and I think that's beautiful that you've been able to, you know, reconnect and, and give gratitude towards those people in your life, because I'm, you know, when you're going through it, it's, it's probably not something you're able to do because you're just trying to keep your head above water. (laughs) You know, it's, and you don't realize maybe the, the, um, the vastness of the people around you that are there to see you succeed when you're going through that. So I think that that's really beautiful that that's, a part of your journey. I'm curious, Marcia, you know, how have your daughters responded to the book? And, and, you know, I'm, obviously they know your story. Um, what's the conversation with them like around your, your journey? I mean, they were very little when, when all of this happened, but as they, you know, grew up and, and grew older, what was, what has some of the conversation been like with them? Well, you know, they were very little during my first marriage and the breakup of that. But, um, you know, my whole second marriage and that beautiful life we had together and until, you know, what befell my my second husband. I mean, they were they were already in college and beyond, you mm. know, that. Um, you know. To be truthful, I, I don't feel comfortable sharing actually the conversations that that I've had with my daughters about That's it okay. and what they've said. Um, you know, they're young women out in the world, and they'll they're, they'll tell their own story. Um, certainly, they know about this book. Certainly, they read it 
long before um, I submitted it for publication. Certainly, I told them if there was anything in it about them that they didn't want there that I would take out and that, you know, if, if there were any other things that just didn't seem, you know, right to them, that they should uh, bring it to my attention. And I did find, I did, I did find some things to change. Oh, that's um, nice. So, you know, I, I was at an event, you know, just the other night and, um, and one of my daughters was, was there and, you know, she, she just made it clear. I didn't know if she was going to speak or not. And she did. Um, she just, she just made it clear, you know, that, that, that she's just, she's so proud. I mean, mm -hmm. what, what she said is, you know, you took seven years to figure out your truth and then put it down on paper and share it with others in a, in a way that they can, you know, relate to it and be inspired by. And, um, and, and, you know, I'm so proud of you. Oh, what that's probably what, you know, the biggest compliment you could get from yeah, a daughter yeah. that, that's really, you know, that that's really beautiful. And yeah, I don't want to um, dig into your privacy or your private conversations. We can leave that there. And I'm sure that they're huge supporters of their mama. So that that's wonderful. Um, Marcia, your second marriage was joyful until your husband's PTSD was revealed. And you've mentioned you had, a you know, a beautiful life. How did you cope with the sudden change and the impact it had on your family? And what support did you seek during that time? You know, my second marriage was the kind of marriage that if everybody in the whole world had that kind of marriage, the world would be a beautiful place, you know? Um, and when suddenly my husband, literally his personality started changing. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he would be abrupt or, or brusque or, you know, you know and then it, it just kept getting worse from there. I mean, I, I really did not understand what was happening. Um, ultimately what we discovered, what, 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 what was revealed is that he had been terribly abused by both his parents in childhood and had buried those memories. And, you know, something had triggered um, his, you know, his um, accessing those memories, his, his memories coming to get, you know, his past coming to get him is how I frequently talk about it, but his, you know, his past revealed itself um, gradually in layers. And, you know, his PTSD was devastating. I mean, he was having flashbacks and, uh, you, you know, suddenly he would lose track of the fact that I was the person in front of him, not someone else from long ago. You know, he would lose track of the fact that, you know, we were living in our house, you know, we weren't somewhere else from from long ago. And all we wanted was to stay together. Um, and in the end, it was 
too much to hope for. The way, the way I got through it was bumpy. I mean, what was happening became clearer and clearer in different stages, and it would be kind of hope and let down and hope and let down. Um, I will say that we had a, a very good couples therapist, and my husband had his own therapist, and I, at least for a while, had my own therapist, and that was that was of great help. It's also the fact that. It became clear to me, and and actually, our I I learned a lot about childhood trauma, and I I and our therapist was very helpful in helping me understand this. Plus, me being me, I was also doing some research, mm-hmm. um, although we didn't have internet then, <laughs> but. Um, yeah, it, it turns out that it's extremely difficult for people with PTSD to maintain even their most important relationships, no matter how much they want to. And that was, that was very hard for me to, to comprehend because uh, I, I really couldn't imagine that my husband would not want us to continue being together. Plus he kept saying the only thing he wanted was for us to get to the other side of that, you know, together. Um, at the same time, he was kind of pushing me into situations that, that made it hard to stay And there. And there was a situation that once that happened that I realized, no, um, this marriage has to end. And when I told him that I thought we needed a divorce, what he said to me was, thank you. Mm, Wow. And and what his therapist had explained to me, um, and and I have since spoken to other PTSD survivors and, um, you know, like I said, done more research. You know, can you imagine if, can you imagine coming to realize that the entire childhood that you thought you had was not the childhood you had, that the parents you thought you had were not the parents you had had, that, that, that these horrible things had been done to you. And it, it was what he had to do was I think almost impossible for anyone. I mean, absorb that and and learn to live with it and be able to go on um even you know with a good life even knowing that that was the case and one of the things the therapist explained to me is he just he had to be able to compartmentalize all this new understanding, you know, in a separate part of him, he couldn't be dealing with it all the time. He just wouldn't be able to get from morning to night. And that 
he might be able to put it aside and, you know, for a little while and, and absorb it in, in small pieces. I, I, I don't really know what that process is like, so I can't describe it. But one thing that I was, and I'll just speak more generally about what I've heard from other people um, in the same situation, you know, their partners, their kids, their friends, you know, there are people who know about the situation and they are like witnesses. So I believe what was happening from his point of view is that when he was looking at me, he was looking at someone who knew what to him was still so shameful. He hadn't gotten past the part of just being so ashamed, or I should say, Again, I don't know his actual internal thinking, but I hear from many PTSD survivors that they're, they have the, they, they start with the reaction they had as children, which is there must be something terrible about them if this is what is being done to them. And I mm-hmm. am not saying I know that's what happened to my second husband because I do not know that. But it became clear to me and our therapist kept saying this to me, he may have to leave, but he may not be able to pull the trigger. Mm-hmm. He yeah. may be pushing you to do it. I believe that's what happened. We, we broke up in the most loving of ways, really looking out for each other. We were both in our own ways devastated. In the book, I talk about um, a reunion that we had only about two years ago. Um, after so many years and how wonderful and uncomplicated it was in that we hardly spent any time talking about the breakup and just kind of picked up with the old kind of wonderful conversations we used to have. Oh, that's so beautiful. Wow. Like, I can't imagine what that reunion was like for you both. It was, uh, yeah, I'm sure it was really special. It, it was layered and it was, it was very special. Um, but, but it was layered. I, you know, um, I will say that for a, fortunately a very short while after that, I, I really was kind of thrown back into a very sad situation because it's like, Oh, I was right. I did lose <laughs> something, really as good man. something as wonderful as I thought I had lost, you know, but then very, gra- you know, uh, slowly, but, uh, but, but when I mean, what I mean when I say slowly in this case is, you know, over the course of maybe a week or two, you know, I, I realized that, you know, we both moved on. Neither of us is the same person we were. We, it's wonderful that we were both able to say to each other how much we appreciated the other and that even knowing the ending, we would, we would both do the marriage again. Aww. <laughs> that's really me, beautiful. That's what, I, that's what I carry with me. Yeah, well, there's a saying I always like to say that people come into your lifetime for a reason, a season, and a time. And you yeah. obviously impacted each other's lives in a great capacity. And it was a love that was meant to be. And probably refreshing for you it sounds like because out of your first very abusive marriage you were able to experience what a healthy marriage was like up until you know a certain point so I think that that's a 
a beautiful thing as well. Well, and my girls had the most wonderful stepfather. I mean, yeah. a wonderful example for them. And, yeah. you know, he has stayed in touch with them. And yeah. Oh, oh that's, well, it sounds like a beautiful ending. Marcia, many women find themselves in situations where they feel trapped and unable to change others' actions like you. How did you finally grasp the concept of exerting agency over your own life? And is there any advice that you can give to women who may be struggling with this? Well, I have to say, um, if any woman out there is hoping to hear about a breakthrough moment when suddenly you know, I didn't feel trapped and unable to change others' actions. It, it, it didn't happen like that. It happened in, in small pieces that I realized that, that I had, um, that, that I had agency. Um, you know, I think the way I describe it is like this, um, you know, the way I, the way I describe agency to myself, which is that early on, I was just waiting for the next bad thing to happen and mm-hmm. feeling like I couldn't prevent it. And then time passes, many incidents happen. I can mention a few of those. And, and then I realize, oh, no, I, I don't have to cave to this. You know, I, 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 ha- I, ha- I have ways that I can deal with this and and fix it. I mean, sometimes those ways are just walk away from the situation. Sometimes it's leave a door open when you're tempted to slam it. Sometimes it's slam a door when you're still hoping, you know, something will change. But, you know, uh, there was one incident that, that did matter to me, and this is not in the book, but um, I told you that my first husband you know, would try to break into my apartment when, mm-hmm. when I scary. was at work. I didn't mention that my mother-in-law, his mother was doing the same thing. And I didn't mention that the two of them in cahoots kidnapped my daughters for a few oh days. Oh my gosh. And um, that, that, that stuff is in the, is in the book. This, what I'm about to tell you now is not in the book. And, and that is that, you know, I, I would complain to to a friend about my mother-in-law and particularly after you know one time she did succeed in breaking into my apartment and another time you know like I said after this kidnapping and I w- I was just sort of going on about how outrageous she was to a friend of mine and I wanted um, I wanted sympathy I wanted him to commiserate with me and I wanted to hear, Oh my God, that's terrible. You know, I don't even know how you manage, you know, I wanted to hear like that. And what I got was a very mild statement from him and none of the emotion I was craving. And what he said was, that's her problem. It's not yours. Hmm. She's not the problem. You don't. And, and I was like, what are you talking about? It's my apartment they broke into. It's my kids. What, I mean, how, how can you even be saying that? It took me a very long to real, a very long time to realize that what he was saying is you're caving. And actually, you know, 
there are things you can do about this situation. And there were things I could do about the situation. I changed the situation of what was going on in my apartment when I was at home so that my husband and my, my ex-husband and his mother stopped showing up um, because um, there was not just some teenage babysitter behind, you know, that, that door of my apartment. Um, and there was a situation in court, you know, I told you in court, I, I told you earlier that when I was in court with my first husband and, and a lie of his was revealed and the, and I was not put in jail and his, his suit was dismissed. Um, we were sitting in, in, in the courtroom, we had, and, and the, his lawyer stood up and said to the judge, he was telling the judge what my, my ex-husband wanted in terms of our household effects. And he said to the judge, and there's a set of teacups that they bought in Japan. And it's a, it's, it's a, it's a dear, you know, memory, a memento from their trip. And he wants half of them. And I'm sitting there in court thinking I'm going to go to jail. And I'm thinking to myself, teacups? You're talking like, about teacups. And I whispered to my lawyer, I don't care about the teacups. He can have all the teacups. And, and his lawyer is going on about these teacups. And then my lawyer stands up and I am sure she is going to say, your honor, we don't care about the teacups, you know? And what she says is um, that she wants to, she wants the case dismissed because the list that his lawyer is reading from, she has an exact copy of that she's holding right here in her hand. And it's a list that my ex-husband and I made up, you know, together a long time ago about how we were going to divide things up in the divorce so that he always knew we were getting a divorce and I wasn't running away and he knew I had a new apartment, et cetera, et cetera. So we leave the courthouse. I'm just ecstatic. I had arranged childcare for my kids expecting to go to court and, or, you know, if I were in, you know, went from court to prison and um, for defying the restraining order. And I said to my lawyer as we were walking to her car, and you know, he can have the teacups. I really don't care about the teacups. And she just stopped and she said to me, would you stop talking about those teacups? You don't realize what you're into here. Huh? And I didn't. What she was seeing that I was not is that this was not the end of the story and that an ex-husband who would do what he had just done with the cops, with the lying to the judge, you know, all of that, I had to do more than just wait for the next bad thing to happen and hope I could deal with it. Yeah. And there is something about knowing that that's the job um, that, that can help. Um, and again, I can't, I I mean, I imagine my answer to, to most of your questions is don't isolate yourself. Tell people what's going on. Mm -hmm. If you're not, 
you weren't born into the right family, make your own family, you know, we can do that. So, you know, you find people to be your family of choice. Um, well, and thankfully you had a lawyer that saw past the teacups and really understood the, the situation and what you needed. She took the ball, the, the bull by the horn, so to speak. So, um, yeah, it sounds like you had great representation. Marsha, what would you like our readers and listeners um, to take away from your story, especially in terms of dealing with trauma, healing, and empowerment? You know, after, after my second marriage broke up, I was absolutely shattered, and I was in such pain and deep grief and you know the loss was enormous for me and i will say that breaking up the breakup of that marriage involved losing my career my husband my home and a lot of other important relationships friends and cousins and um people said to me really after only a few weeks or maybe after a few months you know, you should be over it by now. It's time for you to be over it. And I was not over it. And it made me feel so isolated and like no one understood what I was going through. And I will say that it took years for me to get over it. Um, it doesn't have to last a lifetime. But, you, you know, I, I did get over it. And it is normal not to be ready to be over it when people tell you that you should be. And I think just hearing that and believing it, I hope, helps people understand that no one else, no one else knows when, when they're going to be over it. Um, but it is longer than anyone who hasn't lived through it believes. Mm -hmm. And I think another thing is that we all do the best we can at an, at any given point. I made a marriage, my first marriage, even knowing that it was going to be bad for me, but not seeing a way out. And, um, I, you know, I, I've been... I made a lot of bad choices. You know, I told some bad lies. They're in the book. I, I had a serious eating disorder, which I have overcome. Um, you know, I was just eating to feel better. Um, and I could look back at my old self, my young self, I should say, and say, why did you do that? You know, if, if only I hadn't, if only I hadn't, and I think we have to stop feeling bad about choices we made when we were younger, even if younger means a month ago. You know, um, I think we all do the best we can at any given point. And what really matters is what do we do now? And if you look at my own story of discovering myself, and then after a major loss, regaining my footing, you know, kind of for a second time, 
um, it's even along the way I was doing, you know, some not helpful things and then more helpful things at any given point, not just when I was, you know, in fifth grade or sixth grade and started overeating, you know, so I, I think we, we just have to, um, not sit and, and disregard or disrespect who we have been from the start and understand the pressures that were on us and, and the faculties, the skills, the understanding, the sophistication we did or didn't have at any particular age. So I, I think maybe those are the most important things. Mm, well, thank you for sharing. I mean, your story, Marsha, I feel like it's like five lifetimes wrapped into one from you know, your tumultuous upbringing to your eating disorder, to an abusive marriage, to a second failed marriage, to Harvard Business School, to writing a book and raising your daughters. I mean, that's um, what a legacy. And you've, you've done all of that. You've got through it. And to your point on days that you probably, you know, you were just surviving, but you did it. And um, it's very empowering to hear your story and your journey that you've been on. And um, so honored that you would share it. Um, I appreciate your vulnerability and your willingness to share because there's this part of you that is, I can sense that is very private. Well, private with other people's stories, which I respect, but you're so vulnerable with sharing your own story. And I'm just so appreciative of that. So thank you. Well, thank you for the opportunity. And we always ask, ask our guests, uh, what do you vow to yourself in life or what have you vowed? Well, along the way, I have vowed to love my young self as I was realizing I should do that. And now, um, now that just comes naturally to me. Um, um, as I age, I am vowing to stay actively engaged and stay curious. I think curiosity is so important just to want to keep having new experiences, want to keep learning new things. And I will confess and say that sometimes for me, I am acting as if I'm curious, you know, like if, if you know, if, if I see an article that, you know, I say, oh yeah, I don't want to know any more about that. Or yeah, I'm not going to read that, you know, I'll, you know, and then I'll remember, mm, stay curious, be curious, expand your mind. And I think the bigger one that I really do say, you know, say to myself, never stifle a generous impulse. Just, I, I just never will stifle a generous impulse. And somehow I have, sometimes I have to catch myself doing that hmm. and, and tell myself to stop it. I mean, all the people who were so generous in, in, giving me their love, their support, I, I mean, just their attention. Um, you know, it's, I, I, I had a friend recently who, who had an illness in the family and actually not a friend, you know, someone I know, but, but not a friend. There was an illness in the family and, uh, and there was an organ, there was an organized process to have people delivering the meals and it, uh, delivering meals to them. 
and it came at a time that was really difficult. You know, I, I was really strapped for time and I was like, oh, well, they're going to get a lot of people delivering the meals. And then I was saying to myself, Marsha, what are you talking about? Never stifle a generous impulse. And I did. I started cooking and I took it over, you know, and and I was so glad I did. Because if I were the person who didn't do that, I would not be the person that I want to be. Mm-hmm. Amen. <laughs> Amen to that. Well, lastly, we always like to spotlight a charity of choice. Is there a charity that you would like to spotlight today? Yes, thank you. Um, I like to give to local organizations that are really making a difference. And one of them is um, our New York public radio station, WNYC, for really being a wonderful source of local news. And I know that in so many places, local news just isn't covered anymore. Um, And another place that I would like to mention is the West Side Campaign Against Hunger. Mm. Their website is wisca.org, W-S-C-A-H. This is a phenomenal, I'll call it a food pantry, but they have done so much more in how they provide food to to people who do not have enough food that other people um, involved in, in this service come from all over the country to see, and actually from other parts of the world, just to observe how they do it because they provide fresh, nutritious food. They take food to where the people are and they, they provide social work services on site and things like health education on site to the people who are waiting in line to go in and get their food. And that is um, West Side Campaign Against Hunger, WSCA, W-S-C-A-H. Well, thank you again so much, Marsha. Thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing your story. You are a true inspiration. Marsha's book, The Wrong Calamity, can be found on Amazon and anywhere where books are sold. And I should mention that it is Publishers Weekly Book Life has named it as an editor's pick. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to The Vow, Voice of Women. We hope that this episode has inspired you. If you want more information on The Vow, visit our website at voiceofwomen.ca. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps us spread the stories.